Proudly coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Frontier Podcast. I'm your host, Ledge, and we are powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and join the conversation at the Frontier Pod on Twitter. Giddy up! What if digital and marketing teams could really launch amazing web apps without needing developers? That's the promise of low-code and no-code platforms. The interesting paradox is the extensive engineering required to create and maintain them. That's what makes this work so interesting, freeing developers to work on challenging problems while enabling others to achieve more powerful results. Alex Howard is the lead engineer behind that process at Brandcast, and in this episode, Ledge and Alex discuss the engineering challenges of simplifying and democratizing web development, balancing your workflow as an engineer, and not painting yourself into a technical debt corner with features when you're building really complex and innovative tools. Alex, great to have you on, man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Ledge, great to have you on too. Can you give a you know a little quick background, two three minutes about uh, yourself and your work? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a tiny little town in Ohio um, as a homeschooled little kid, and I wasn't super smart. And then I found a computer for the first time, and I became obsessed with everything about it. <laughs> um, probably from the age of ten. Uh, built a computer with my dad and he worked at a company. He was an IT manager. So we'd always bring home computer parts. And I remember just like constantly clicking around on everything. I just wanted to know what everything did and how it worked. Um, and eventually just kind of got into little scripting languages like AutoIt. Um, I remember writing automation for like automated or online games. Um, so that while I did my school, it could play the boring parts for me. And then, uh, you know, after school, I could play the fun parts. <laughs> um, and then from there, I kind of discovered the web um, when I was like 15 or something. I just remember it being so cool that you could open the code for any site that you found and just see how it worked. Um, and I think that was during the day where jQuery was starting to get really big. Um, so I got really involved in that. Um, worked on just, you know, random little freelance projects where I could. And... Uh, got really big in the jQuery IRC channel, just helping everybody learn stuff and learning things there and being super obsessed with that. Um, ended up meeting this guy who was working at a startup in Austin, Texas and thinking that was the coolest thing ever. I helped them out with a few things and they wanted me to move there and work with them. And I was just kind of young and not ready to make a big move like that yet. But we reconnected years later and he suggested I come to San Francisco where he was. And I wasn't really sure what I was doing with my life. I graduated high school and just wasn't sure I wanted to go to college or anything. I felt like I kind of knew what I wanted and that I should just go and work on it. Um, so he suggested I come out here for basically vacation turned into me trying to find a job and ironically landing at Brandcast um, through his friend. And that just kind of spiraled off into a weird never ending path of jumping between startups and ultimately coming back to Brandcast for almost going on two years now. Um, so I have sort of an interesting perspective on, on Brandcast. Um, but I mean, as a whole, web development's kind of been my, my jam for a while. Um, did a lot of C-sharp development and sort of other avenues, but I always come back to the web. That's awesome. Yeah, give a quick intro of, of Brandcast because I think the tools you guys are, are building, you know, is really the, the root of a great set of stories. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Brandcast is, uh, I think we've been around for six years now and our goal has always really been the same thing. It's It's 
all about being able to have designers and marketers kind of freed up from the the hassle of working with a developer, right? I mean, it's developers don't really want to do this either, but Brandcast is all about having that design freedom, um, being able to work like you normally would work. You, you know what you want to make, you know what you want to design, you have ideas for animations, you have ideas for content. Um, in our app, you can just do anything that you come up with and kind of go crazy. And by the end of it, you've published a real working website. Um, you know, generally websites are really complicated, expensive, slow. Um, everybody's got to rely on a developer who usually has much bigger problems to work on. You know, we're software engineers. It's not necessarily where we think our time could be best spent. Um, so it's really about building a tool that designers and marketers can work together and developers get to focus on the piece that really matters to them. Yeah. You were talking uh, before we jumped on, on the recording, you know, about, about some of the interesting challenges you guys face, um, you know, from a scaling perspective and, and your contributions to, you know, really uh, advancing react itself, you know, on the, on the open source side to solve some of those problems. Um, go ahead and, you know, tell a couple of those stories. Cause I think the audience would love that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, as a whole, like the, this, this path we're taking is, is very difficult one. You know, there's a reason it's not necessarily been done before. Um, so we're taking on kind of a, a bit of a crazy task. We want to build websites in the web without a developer. Um, so it's not just, you know, CMS is great, but you still need a developer anytime you change your template or whatever that thing is, or, you know, there are simpler static site generators that just use an existing template and you're kind of limited there. Um, so we wanted to take the approach of you can do anything you imagine and you never need to download anything just like you don't want your customers to have to download anything. Um, so obviously that comes with some crazy challenges. Um, one of which was, you know, we, we wanted this idea of you have this super complex UI around your website that are just tools you can use to edit your website. So the big focus is that you see your site as it will be. It's what you see is what you get. Um, and you can just directly interact with it and select text and change that text and whatever it is. Um, and that was actually a really big challenge because the browser doesn't really have this concept of multi-context selection or anything of the sort. Um, and React doesn't lend itself to that either simply because it, that's not a need that they really had there, right? Um, so we sort of hit this wall of, well, how do we, how do we have multiple contexts in which you can have different selections? Um, and iframes seemed like a good solution because it is literally another browser context. Um, so we had to find a way to kind of get react to let us do that. And I think right around that time they had come out with what's called a, a portal, right? So you can have just any Dom node anywhere, um, and you can kind of connect to it and render a separate sort of separate React tree to it. Um, and we thought that that would be a great solution, but it didn't work within iframes. Um, and there were a few challenges around that. So we started a fork off of React and kind of worked on that until it felt right um, and realized then that we needed to be able to drag and drop between those contexts as well. Um, so we ended up contributing back to both React and React D&D um, to make that a possibility. Um, and then, so what that really lets us do is we have a single React instance that can render to multiple contexts and there's no you know, cross-origin issue because that iframe isn't actually loading something. We're just using it as basically a render canvas and it handles its own events and everything, but it all gets lifted up to the top. So it, it almost kind of fades away once you solve the problem. You, know, you just render a component that's a frame and you can put any normal components you want 
inside of its children and it just renders it and you're kind of good to go. So once it was solved, you know, it, it really faded away as an issue and we could just keep working the way we did normally, um, which definitely helped us move a lot faster there. I think we, we actually spent like two years getting that back into React itself, um, which I, happened just last year, which was a huge moment for us. Um, getting that in there was cool. And, you know, we actually, it was funny, I think this was also last year, we realized that let us do some more things like popping out different windows because if we render it as an iframe, why not also pop it out as a window? So we kind of keep moving closer and closer to feeling like a native app, but inside of the browser, um, which is definitely awesome on that. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously like endless solutions I can think of off the top of my head for WYSIWYG and, you know, like the precursors to what we now call low code, you know, and yeah. all those things. And, and I'm always interested. And I think, I think our audience is, you know, like that's an interesting challenge because you really are, are creating a product to abstract out, you know, that, that creative experience and really, you know, kind of democratize the, <laughs> the web building, you know, for everybody else. And, yeah. And I think there's this like misnomer now where, you know, you kind of get like the pop tech articles about how no code is going to, you know, eliminate um, <laughs> the engineering. And, you know, yeah. as you're demonstrating, and I'm sure you could kind of laugh about this with me, like the engineering Absolutely. challenges of making that happen itself is it, more than a full time sort of effort for, you know, dozens of minds. And it sounds like the experience yeah. you guys had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's sort of the funny thing is it's like the only way you get to no code for somebody is by having a lot of code, right? Engineers are needed to reach that point. We just get to focus on what in our minds are the bigger, cooler challenges. It's honestly awesome. It's the reason that I ultimately came back here. And it's actually funny you say democratizing this area is that's a term that's been used since the inception of Brandcast internally. And I mean, you know, just to go back a little bit to the vision is like, we think teams or marketing teams, especially are going to webify everything because if you could not have to have somebody download a PDF, wouldn't you do that? If you could have insights on what parts they saw, if it could be responsive, so it's something you can share and know that if somebody opens it on mobile, it looks great. And you can tell where they, you know, got tripped up or what links they fall in everything. It's like, why not make this something that everybody does without a second thought? I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is, you know, I've used a lot of these tools, you know, in, in passing and, and so many of them are, are clunky and slow mm -hmm. and just, you know, so the antithesis of a, of a <laughs> good experience, you know, like just walk me through some of the engineering challenges of, of actually making that work the right way. You know, I've, I've been hurt, man. And people have been making this promise <laughs> to me for years. You know, how, how are you guys doing this? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a, there's a few kind of things we could talk about there. Um, I mean, it's, I, I totally get that being hurt by, especially web apps, right? Like it's a, it's a hard area to be performing in. I think React and Redux and Draft and all these things have made that so much easier for us, but still the scale at which we're building this application is, is insane. Um, so We've built a bunch of internal tools for data memoization for when we need to select what parts of state. And I mean, we at any point can have thousands of React components just for the sake of having the actual page itself and then the whole UI around that and depending on which panels you have open at any moment. So it's like there's so many things where we have feature interplay and just massive numbers of components that all care about similar state and potentially different ways. So 
I mean, I guess the first thing I'll dive into is actually what we call virtualization, which is super funny because as everybody here will know and react, you have the virtual DOM. It's already virtual. That's the whole point. That's where you get a big performance benefit. But when you render a page that potentially has thousands of components, um, so actually I should give a little background on, on what our components are, is you build up your page as a set of components. So we sort of abstract away from the designer or the marketer, depending on who's in this. Usually it's the designer in this case. Um, they have containers, they have grids, they have text components, they have images, image galleries, that sort of thing, right? So it's not quite to the level of like a widget per se. Um, some of them definitely have a little bit more interaction going on there, but you're supposed to build up from sort of concrete building blocks and then you can do any form of, you know, abstracting as well the CSS so you can do animation and whatnot. Um, so when you're building up things that way, you end up with a lot of components on your page. And especially, you know, we have this trend these days where we have much longer scrolling pages, um, you know, they kind of just are made up of slides almost. Um, so that led to actually a really huge performance issue because when you have that many React components, you know, you're, you're telling them like, hey, the state changed, you should check if it matters to you. Whereas the majority of them are like, we don't care, but we're going to spend the time figuring that out. Um, which Redux helps with a lot and memoization helps with a lot, but still you're asking a thousand components to figure that out at any given moment. So we actually built another virtualization layer just for this specific area on top of React where we let the first pass only render HTML and then we have a, a sort of event layer on top of that, depending on what you click on to activate or you start dragging something, we create and destroy React components as is fully necessary. Um, so we have this ironically super simple logic that lets us have the whole page be HTML until you try to interact with a part of it and then it becomes a React component on the fly and starts you know, reacting to state, right? Um, that was like a huge, huge performance benefit for a lot of customers that just had these massive pages. Um, you know, you never want to tell your customer like, oh yeah, just make, just make more pages. You'll be fine. Just split everything out. That's, that's not how that should be. Or just like install 64 gigs of RAM. For <laughs> browser, <you know? laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and, and even then it's like, you know, that's not even going to solve the problem because it's a, it's a processing issue. Um, we kind of led with this virtualization thing. We actually led more to let's use memory so that that's not a problem. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it, it should work on any computer and you should be able to do this kind of stuff. Um, and on top of that, you know, we did this internal set of data memorization tools that help us kind of on the fly select parts of our state that we need. Um, and it kind of has this like internal garbage collection for it creates selection selectors on the fly. Um, so we actually use Redux selector and then we built another layer on top of that where it'll create and destroy selectors as they're needed and let them be reused across different containers and components, which is just like the coolest thing to conceptualize and you, you do it and it sort of just again fades away. So we keep building those layers of abstraction over these things for ourselves just so that they fall away and we get to focus on our UI and UX process, which actually, uh, I realize I'm sort of just going crazy and talking a lot here, um, but we have a really unique UI UX process and just the way we go about prototyping, which again, not to harp on about this, but given how complex and just feature rich this application is and is going to continue growing into, um, we can't really follow a super normal or typical, I guess, prototyping process where we, you know, just, do design exploration and maybe use something like, you know, uh, 
envision where we can just connect all these different images together in a single linear flow because every feature we build has interplay with potentially 10 other features we've built and might have interplay with the features we're currently planning. And there's that whole crazy complex web of features that work with each other in unique ways we can't even imagine until we've built it. Um, so we actually have a designer who works in CSS and HTML to prototype with us. Um, so for any given chunk of feature that we think we're going to build, we actually do a design exploration followed by an in-code, in-app prototype uh, phase where we kind of just explore and try different things and see how they're going to interact with other features, um, which is, I mean, it comes with its own crazy set of challenges, of course, but it's let us build a set of features that work so well together um, that I don't imagine we could ever have done otherwise. You know, an application of this level of complexity, my mind goes to, you know, what is your process for technical debt remediation? Because, you know, you, you need to sort of have imagined the data architecture and application architecture so far ahead that I, I imagine this, this comes up, you know, over and over again, where you, you know, painted yourself into a corner and needed to refactor, but, um, you know, always there's this demand on the, the backlog for new features. And how do you balance that, that workflow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you've, uh, you've been through everything we're currently going through many times. <laughs> um, it, it, that is definitely like the biggest challenge that we have. Um, we sort of maintain this set of internal ongoing refactors, right? Because a lot of times you can, you come up with, for example, our, our memoization approach there is, is built on top of a layer of things that we've been doing for two years already, right? So it's not just this like, yeah, let's take a month and, and get to refactor this whole thing to be performant. So we don't only get to build these amazing abstraction layers that help us move faster or help us be more performant at the same time. We also have to think about what is our plan making any old code use that and just as you say, there's so much technical debt there that, you know, you don't just have a feature backlog, you've got this tech debt backlog and, you know, balancing those concerns is, is really tricky. Um, and I definitely, you know, it's, I don't think anybody has a, an easy answer for that problem, but we kind of find a balance. Our, our product team has a good understanding of, and I mean, as a whole, the company, we, we get to communicate that we're building something crazy, just, Super complex. Everybody gets that. Um, so we get to find this balance of spending the right amount of time working on our technical debt issues and finding a path where we don't just spend a month doing it, but we get to work towards it and actually make constant releases that are always improving. Um, so a lot of times we try to take the approach of let's build a set of tools that we can use now and going forward and as is possible be able to go back and just bring forward old code to refactor and use these new approaches. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a, it's crazy. <laughs> I know you're, you're a front end guy. Um, curious, mm -hmm. you know, what, what's the full stack look like for, uh, for the solution? Because I'm, I'm sure you have to deal with, you know, sort of the abstraction of business logic and scale and you yeah. know, sort of horizontal vertical, you know, all these, all these things, what's the, the front to back look like? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, we recently made the, the switch kind of using GraphQL now, which is awesome. That wasn't around when we started. Um, I mean, a lot of these things weren't. So we've 
we've had that piece of technical debt too, is like there's a lot of new open source things we would have leveraged should they have existed. So we're kind of transitioning as well. Um, but in terms of our full stack, we have obviously React on the front end. Um, and then our backend architecture is moving a lot more towards microservices because there are definitely smaller pieces of the backend that need to scale up as necessary. But majority of the backend is written in Django. And then we have our main microservice that actually is used for publishing, um, which actually runs just a node server for React. You know, that was one of the big benefits of our pages are built up of just React components. And we really get to just reuse that whenever we want to publish a site. So we actually just run a smaller set of our code um, in what we call the processing server, um, which is actually just a huge set of Docker containers and everything. I, I think we're switching over to Kubernetes right now and just being able to scale that up. But we, uh, when we publish a page, it's literally just a, hey, can you publish this for me? And then it, re it renders effectively what we render for a preview on the back end. Um, and spits that out to a Nginx, or not an Nginx, but an S3 bucket that ends up being a CDN. So we're completely built on top of AWS infrastructure, um, using SQS a lot and just kind of trying to spread that load. Um, you know, the, the early days is always that thing where you are moving really fast and you sort of forget to break out things into microservices and whatnot. I think Django has sort of helped us do that a little bit moving forward as well. Um, but our infrastructure is almost fully using Docker now, I believe as well, which is also great for, you know, development side. We basically get to run the same set of backend code and database and everything. Yeah. The way you're talking about your rendering, it makes me think there are immediate use cases for, for serverless. Are you going that direction at all? Yeah. I mean, I we sort of thought of that too. It given the on-demand nature, um, I think we're a little concerned about making that switch, but there are definitely going to be use cases where that would be really helpful. Um, actually, a, a good example is, so we, we have this feature called a site map. Anytime you open a website, you get to see basically the, a tree structure of how your pages are all laid out, um, which again is a nice abstraction of you don't have to understand how HTML files have to be laid out in folders or anything of the sort. Um, the marketer can just kind of build this tree up of pages. But we used to use iframes for that section because, hey, we can just render a preview for something given React components. Obviously, you run into the same performance issue when you have massively long pages. So we had to spin up this thing that basically became, we reused the processing server to render a thumbnail of any given page. Um, and so that just reused this server-side rendering of React um, and just kind of on the fly generates thumbnails for everything. But that's one of those things where, you know, it, it doesn't have to be instant and it doesn't have to be on demand and also needs to automatically scale up as necessary. So that's definitely one of the areas I think serverless would be more beneficial to. I think we're kind of, you know, hesitant to just dive into a new technology that clearly has benefits and more trying to weigh what are the pros and cons of switching any given microservice into something like serverless or not? Yeah, absolutely. So last and favorite question of, of mine, you know, we're obviously we're in the business of evaluating and, and sort of, you know, vetting and um, certifying, you know, just a plus, you know, super senior engineers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we think we do that pretty well and we have a really good process for it and it's been successful. Um, and yet, you know, Humbly, we always are out there sort of asking tech leaders that, that we talk to, you know, what are your heuristics for, you know, the very best engineers that, you know, you want to add to your team and, and how do you, you measure and kind of make sure that's successful? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's hiring is like the most important thing I think any tech leader will ever do. And really, I mean, internally for us, it's like the first heuristic is how passionate are they about what we are building and the challenges we have. I mean, if, if somebody believes in the vision of Brandcast, that's the first immediate indicator of, and I mean, so many people do, it's like, why wouldn't I not want to have to do this myself, right? I, I don't want to have to spend a crazy amount of time going back and forth with a designer or a marketer making constant changes and then have to do that again next week just because, you know, we, we pivoted our, our marketing vision or whatever it is. There's always these small updates. Um, so that's really our first focus is how passionate are they about what we are doing? And I think that's sort of something you would always hear from a startup. But then on top of that, it's how interested are in web technology are they and how up to date on these new technologies are they going to be as well? And, and also just how eager are they to learn? Because as I've already mentioned, we have so many in-house things that we've had to do and open source contributions that we're either working on or have done. Um, that's a huge piece of it. And we actually want to take these internal things and get to open source them one day. Right. So we, we really focus on, is that the approach that, that our potential hires want to take with their career as well? Um, and then making sure that that works out is like, I mean, as tech leadership after hiring, your number one thing is being able to manage your team, um, and just kind of see them through their career growth and make sure that they're not getting moved into, uh, you know, a leadership role that they may not have been interested in doing or don't think that they'd be good at or whatever that is just working with them to see that they get to do those things that they want while balancing, you know, what the business's needs are and the product's needs are. And it's, you know, kind of a constant, especially as a startup, like we we're using different pieces of different processes, right? So we do parts of agile that work for us and we come up with our own things that work for us. And um, I think letting the whole team be as involved in that as possible and being transparent about, Hey, we're going to try these process changes um, and sort of see how they go. And we want everybody to be giving constant feedback. So we maintain a internal repo. That's kind of like, this is the approach we're taking to these things. And you can kind of make a pull request or even just a, a suggestion on any process that we do. And I think that lets the whole team kind of be more involved in how do we get things done and what is our big picture in terms of the product that we're building and all these things. Um, Not all goes toward the culture, which I think is the, yeah, the core, exactly. core evaluation there. And then, you know, it's like we often find at this point that, you know, tech chops are just the, the cost of entry, like the, the yeah. stakes and it, and it's so much more about the soft and yeah, absolutely. You know, the qualitative um, aspects and, and it does seem to be, different for every company. And so, you know, I think candidates would, would do well to evaluate that. And, and we do find most senior developers are really just not going to say, Hey, I just want a react gig. They're going to, what is yeah, the right. project? Who will I be working with? What do they do? You know, Absolutely. I just trying to um, innately find that, that fit as well. Yeah. And I mean, we're engineers, right? Like we, we don't just want to engineer code. We want to engineer everything to be sometimes efficient to a fault. That's just like our inherent approach to things is to make them better. And, so we, we want everybody to be involved in, in problems, not just on the engineering side, but our product process, our business process, all of that. And that sort of leads to engineering everything and trying to make everything better and faster and all that, which is, uh, in my mind, super fun to get to do. So how do people you know, take a look at what you guys are doing and, and get in touch? Yeah, definitely. Um, so brandcast.com is our site. I highly suggest you go check that out. It's awesome. Um, you can actually... Um, sign up for free and just kind of play around with the app, um, which is a really great idea. It's 
it's fun. It's great. We love hearing suggestions as well. Um, if you are interested in working with us, uh, you could email careers at brandcast.com. Um, and if you have any other questions or suggestions or anything, just hit us at info at brandcast.com as well. Awesome. Well, Alex, super cool to have you on, man. Thanks for, uh, sharing the stories. Yeah. Ledge, thank you very much. It was good talking to you, man. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.